put your finances aside just for a moment and really start thinking deeply about what purpose looks like in your life, how you want to be identified, what are those main connections in your life? Because I think if you can start there, then we can become really clear about building our finances in such a way that support those things as opposed to rushing to some endpoint of financial independence or financial freedom and then saying, okay, now what do I want to do with all this? Let's invest in those things that really ultimately will make us more happy because as much as we think it will, money will only get us to a certain level of happiness. It's all those other things that need to compound that truly make a life worth living. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocations. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 292. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're about to start swinging into uh, summertime. I know lots of schools are going to be getting out this month or early next month and uh, going to be getting into the, the summer months, summer travel. Hope everybody's got some some great plans for that. I know much of the country is excited for some warmer weather as as am I, although it's been a pretty pretty decent spring here in Texas. I got a couple questions this week that I kind of wanted to address. I guess probably haven't reviewed this on the show for quite some time, surrounding how the the guest selection process works and how we get guests. So I thought I'd just dive into that a little bit. I know we've got a lot of new listeners, uh, especially on Spotify recently. So yeah, I mean, it's all volunteer. Definitely appreciate those that uh, volunteer to come on the show because without them, you know, we probably wouldn't have much of a show, if any. And the, the other thing is, you know, there is an intake form and a process. Usually we, you know, have a, a couple emails exchanged in some cases. And then, uh, yeah, we have a, an intake form that we get into the detail. We do not audit any of their finances or look at any of their statements or whatever. We take them, you know, on, on, on face value in that regard. Uh, so it's possible that somebody may be, you know, fibbing or numbers may be out. But the, the integrity of, of our guests, I think, is, is, is pretty dang high. I don't think I've ever felt that there were some that were, you know, fibbing or, 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 you know, extending their numbers by any stretch of imagination or anything. I'm obviously with real estate and business valuations, sometimes those become, you know, difficult uh, to, to really get to the bottom of. But at any rate, I think most of our guests do a really, really good job of that. And then, yeah, we record an episode and in some cases they don't ever get released. So there's kind of a, a little bit of a, in some cases, if we don't feel like the, the episode is, is valuable for our our audience, or if, you know, the guest, you know, ended up not wanting it to go out for whatever reason or whatever, then uh, we don't. And so, yeah, we do have quite a few that we have over the last several years that we have uh, recorded and have never released. So hopefully that gives you a little bit insight on how we select guests and, and where they come from. Yeah. And if you'd like an episode, leave a, a review for us. It's a great way to thank the guest uh, for them coming on the show. They don't get paid and are willing to, to share a lot of this information and uh, their personal story. So it's one way to show your appreciation uh, for them and the show is is by leaving a review and a rating. Appreciate those that have done that so far. We continue to get uh, some more of those. Since we've been having more and more engagement on Spotify and there's some cool tools and resources, I am going to start playing around uh, with some of those, either some Q&A things and some polls. 
So if you're listening on there or want to and want to participate in those, go check that out. I'll try to get a little bit more engaged uh, with those on there. But it seems like it's a some pretty fun things that we can do with uh, kind of the, the Spotify platform and where our podcast gets published to. So once again, if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, mealnewsunveiled at gmail.com. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll uh, get uh, time set up and go through the intake form and all that and uh, get a, get things set up and get rolling, rocking and rolling. So this week we've got Doc G, we get a returning guest. Some of you may have remembered him. I think his original episode was... Jeez, early, early, early days of the podcast. We had him on episode number 28, so several years ago. And then we did have another follow-up uh, episode 151. Did a little, and for those that are going back into into the history, into the uh, archives here, on, let's see, this was in 2018, net worth was at 6.5. And then a couple years later, net worth was 7.5. And then uh, we get into the interview with, with Doc G today. Net worth is probably hovering around 10. He admits that he probably peaked at a little over 10, but he has since kind of taken a back seat with a lot of his career and uh, is probably just below or around 10 million now. Crazy enough, he sold all of his real estate uh, in the last couple of years as he's moved into a new phase of his career and, and life and uh, other than his primary residence and then he's got most done in the stock market now so we get in a little great discussion with him about that and kind of the mindset shift and change as he's moved on from from being a physician uh, to to more of a you know things that he enjoys and and is uh, spending his time doing now still working still you know earning an income but in, in a much different manner and we get into that detail with him last week we had Nicole her net worth was 5.6 million yeah so great episode with her about uh, selling a couple businesses as uh, as a business owner and a nurse practitioner go check out that it's episode number 291. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode today with Doc G. Doc G, what's going on? How are you doing? Jace, it's great to be back. This is one of my favorite shows because I feel like you guys uncover, uncover the secrets of millionaires. So I'm so happy to be a guest again. So I was going back and, and it, I mean, you've had quite the journey in the last couple of years. So I guess probably to start off with, let's give everybody a life update. What are you up to now as you've kind of moved into this next phase of your life and career? So I've really transitioned out of the career phase, so to speak. So I was a busy practicing physician. I had my own private practice. I was doing a lot of nursing homework as well as hospice work. And I got to the point where I realized around 2018 that I was not enjoying work nearly as much as I wanted to. I was getting really burned out and I got my finances order in order and realized I had enough that I didn't need to work so aggressively and that started the process of subtracting out those things in my work environment I didn't like. Eventually, I got rid of my practice. I got rid of everything except hospice work. And now I do it as a medical director of a hospice where I manage teams. So I work about 10, 15 hours a week. I'm a consultant, so no nights, no weekends. Really, I'm my own boss. Uh, and it gives me complete control to pursue things that I really enjoy, in this case, things like podcasting, and I just wrote a book, and all these kind of things that fulfill me a little more than 
I was feeling fulfilled when I was burning out at work. Wow. So I was looking back, episode 28 was the original appearance, which is like the early, early days of the show. Net worth at that time was 6.5. Where did you peak out or I guess maybe where you are now and what has happened going from 6.5 to, to that next level? So I peaked out at about eight figures. So I think there's a time where we we hit around 10 million. And then, of course, parts of the economy dropped out. I'm a heavily stock invested. And so I'm probably a little bit below there now. So not 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 where I started, but probably not at my height either. I'm somewhat in between. In the meantime, I had about five doors in my real estate portfolio, and I got rid of all of them but one. Uh and really, strangely enough, I spend a lot less time thinking about money specifics per se. So I spend a lot less time looking at my net worth and looking at my accounts and a lot more time thinking about kind of what the, having the safety and having some money and net worth allows me to do. Did you, I mean, I mentioned that you got rid of the, the real estate. Why, why did you do that first of all? And then what did you move that money into? So I was managing, self-managing these units, and during COVID, everything went wrong. Like, so I had um, a number of these were condos, and I had a condo in a really nice high-rise, but it ended up getting cockroaches. Someone brought cockroaches into the building, and so I had my tenants who were dealing with a cockroach infestation. They were forced to work from home because it was COVID times. And the building had also been sanctioned by the by the local government that they had to do some facade changes. And so there was eight months of loud noise while they were doing major constructural construction changes to the front of the building. And so, for instance, and this is just one of my units, these poor women had to live with cockroaches, were trying to work from home, had constant noise from nine to five in the building. And it was just stress, you know, dealing with them, trying to figure out how to make them feel whole, trying to figure out the cockroach issue and how we were going to actually get the unit free of cockroaches, which was not easy. And that was just one unit. And another unit we had a problem with in this is in Chicago and it's in the city and they're having all sorts of problem with mice and rats. So there was a problem with rats with another one of our units. And these are really nice units in nice areas. And I just found that between the tenants and the structural issues of the units and all those things, it was getting exhausting. And I was spending more time and having more anxiety about managing these units. And really, when I looked at it, it wasn't making enough money to make it worthwhile. And so eventually, I decided to transition out. I sold the units and the grand majority of that went into the stock market. So no 1031 in the primary residence or anything like that, just straight to the taxable brokerage? So I had been 1031ing up until that point, but at some point, unless you want to buy another investment property, the rules around 1031 are really, really strict. And since I wanted to be out of real estate, it didn't really give me that many different options of what I could 1031 into. So I finally decided to just take the hit and pay the taxes because unless I was going to continue 1031ing these until I died and passed it on to my children, I was going to take the tax hit at some point anyway. Interesting. So plow that into taxable brokerage. And now I guess from an asset allocation standpoint, I mean, how do you think about that? Are you happy with where things are at as you moved into this next phase? Is there any changes that that you've wanted to make, you know, maybe that you haven't yet or that you're waiting to, depending on where the market goes? So that's the thing is you think a lot about diversity, right? So I, when I had real estate, I had the great option of being diversified, having 
actual real estate as well as stocks and bonds, et cetera. I have some collectibles. I own my own house. I have some other things. But ultimately, when I got the money out of real estate, I had to ask myself this question, well, are you diversified well enough? So I'm an index investor, right? So I know that I'm fairly well diversified in stocks. I own some bond funds and some international stocks. So I'm a little bit well diversified there. Uh, but assets outside of the stock market and bonds, I don't have a lot besides my house and my cars and those type of things. But I have another magical bullet, which really, to me, solves the diversification problem. I still have income. So although I pulled away mostly from doctoring, uh, because I have the skill set and I have an MD, it's a fairly sought after degree, I can make money often a decent amount of money by doing very little work. So by doing the 10 or 15 hours a week of hospice work, um, plus I consult with a few companies that takes almost no time, uh, I make a decent amount of money. And that really protects me from the ups and downs of especially the stock market. Uh, my wife also has not been ready to retire yet either. So we feel ultra, ultra safe because we have income above and beyond what we're getting from our investments. And so the loss of a little bit of the diversification from leaving real estate doesn't weigh on my mind too much. Did you have a party when you uh, moved on? <laughs> <laughs> from which? From real estate or from doctoring? Both. <laughs> um, so I, I had a little mental party when we when we stepped away from real estate because that was really a lot of stress that was off my mind. Um, you know, there are positives and negatives. Like being a doctor was an incredibly positive thing in my life, even though I became burned out by it. So I was ready to leave when I did, um, but I don't want to take lightly the fact that it really added to my life. It created a huge amount of financial powder, right, that could fuel the rest of my life. Uh, and it allowed me to do important things and touch people's lives and help them. And so, you know, I'm never going to feel badly about that. And in a sense, I can say a lot of the same things about real estate. Real estate, when we first got into it, really did help our financial cause it taught me a lot about life. I learned how to buy and sell real estate. I learned how to be a landlord. You know, even though by the end I was done with both of those things, I don't think I'll ever regret doing them because they added so much just in my knowledge set and they helped me out financially. So no, I, I wasn't having, I didn't have a big, huge party blowout. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was totally relieved, but I was happy to be ready to leave that part of my life behind and move forward. So as you look out, I guess over the next decade, you've kind of had this transition. I wouldn't call it retirement per se, but but you're moving in that direction where you've retired from your main gig for, for many years. What does it look like, you know, as you move forward? I mean, is your spending changing? Is anything changing as it relates to your finances and mindset outside of the things that you're focused on? And and as you mentioned, you're just not as into the weeds of your finances anymore. So I've really changed my focus to pursuing those things that feel real purposeful and interesting to me. So I think a lot of us spend, especially the beginning of our life, in these jobs where we might like part of it or even like a lot of it. But we also spend a lot of time doing things we don't particularly like, right? Maybe it's because we're working for an employer. Maybe it's because we have clients. We might be employed by ourselves, but our clients ask for things we don't necessarily want, et cetera. When you get to the point where your finances become stable, it really gives you the option of looking at your life and saying, well, how am I kind of filling my time and how do I put more things into those time slots that I care about, that are purposeful, that I like to do? How do I get rid of the things I don't like to do and fill up my time with things I do like to do? And so that's really how things have changed. 
is I'm able to live a lot more of a kind of natural life where I wake up when I want to wake up. I go to sleep when I want to go to sleep. I work on the things that are important to me uh, and I either outsource or avoid the things that aren't important to me. And that's made a huge difference. It, it's just, it's a very different life to live. I, I imagine many people who are listening to this, you know, they work a nine to five, they work Monday through Friday, maybe on some Saturdays, but it's just a different life when you don't have to be part of that normal schedule. Like I work on my own podcast, but I might work on that on Sunday night or Saturday morning. And yet on an odd Thursday afternoon, I might be out in the park reading a book. And so being off that kind of nine to five schedule, doing things a little more naturally based on my own rhythms and the things I want to do. It just created a much different life and certainly a different life when it comes to thinking about money and spending. You know, when I was really busy and working, we'd take these huge grand vacations. And part of the reason was I was so stressed out that I felt like I had to treat myself by getting out of the country or going somewhere like Mexico and spending lots of money on a huge uh, expensive resort, those kind of things. When you're living a little bit more naturally where you're not spending a lot of your time based on someone else's schedule but doing what you want to do and how you want to do it, you don't feel that stress. Like You don't feel the need to go out and splurge. You don't feel like you need that quick hit, hit of dopamine that sometimes spending gives you because – you know, the rest of your life is being lived the way you want to do it. So I spend lots less time thinking about money. It doesn't interest me nearly as much, and I don't spend as much time thinking about it uh, and spend a lot more time just thinking about how I'm going to live my life. Are there any big surprises that that you've had as you've made this transition? There are a few surprises, right? So the first big surprise I think a lot of people have is there is a moment of exhaustion when you get to this point where you're like, I have enough money and I can pull away and I'm going to leave from work. And all you really want is rest and relaxation and to be done with difficult things. And so that lasts for a certain amount of time. What's interesting is being at this stage in life doesn't mean you stop striving for things. Like I'm still achievement oriented. I still have goals. I still want to accomplish things. Um, sometimes hard things, sometimes things that do cause some stress and anxiety. I guess the big difference is that these are now things of my choosing, like no one else sets my agenda but me. So if I decide, for instance, I want to write a book or another book, that might be stressful. There might be lots of ups and downs. I may spend a huge amount of time doing that, even sometimes time I'd rather be doing something else, but at least then I've chosen that. So I guess a big surprise is that you don't stop being interested in achievement. It's just your achievements are now much more tempered to how you want to do them. And, and they're a little bit less stressed and rushed. So I think when I was in the midst of my work life, it was like you always wanted to get where you're going and you wanted to get there fast. Now I have all these things I'm interested in doing, but I'm okay with it taking weeks or months or years, whereas I used to want it now, 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 I think when I was busy in my nine to five. What things are you looking forward to as you redesign some of your life and lifestyle? Oh, I mean, there, there are tons of things like, so I work a lot on my podcast, the Earn and Invest podcast. So I'm always excited about who I'm going to be interviewing and how I'm going to build the podcast and change it. So that that's big for me. Another one was this book I wrote, Taking Stock, about what I learned as a hospice doctor about personal finance and life and wealth and living a regret-free life. You know, that was very exciting to 
birth that project to write the book eventually to market it and get it out there. I'm actually thinking about maybe writing another book about healthcare. So that's a big thing on the horizon for me thinking about maybe putting together this next book, whether I'm going to have it published traditionally or self-publish and when I'm going to write that. Um, I'm real excited about the community I've been able to build around my interests. Once I got out of medicine and started identifying more as a personal finance blogger, podcaster, writer, I met people who are a little bit more aligned with who I am. So I'm always looking forward to conferences and meetups and gatherings. And so I have a number of those coming in the future as well as public speaking events. And so the number of things I look forward to actually has increased as I'm able to follow a little bit more of my own passions and doing those kind of things I'm excited about. Are you afraid of running out of money at all? I find it highly unlikely. So I would lie to say that it doesn't cross my mind because I think if you've been programmed the way we have and you've thought about this for this many years, it's hard to completely turn it off. But I'd say it's more of a vague worry, whereas I don't feel the need to rush and check my accounts all the time, um, nor do I really feel a need anymore to track my spending. So I know what I have already invested, and I know what the expected returns of those investments over the next decade or two are, and I also know how much income I have coming in. So I don't really think about how much I spend at all. In fact, something that had never happened to us happened a few weeks ago. I went to use my credit card, and it kept on getting turned down, and I realized we had hit our spending maximum for the month, which had never, ever happened in our lives. But three weeks later, I looked at my bank account and it was no different because we have money coming in, money going out. We're still making some money. We spend a lot less than we really, we spend a lot less than we could. So I don't really worry too much about it. I find it highly unlikely that we would run out of money and we're probably spending more than we ever have. Interesting. What, what are you, what are you spending more money on than you did previously? I think so. We have an 18-year-old. That's first. <laughs> first and foremost, I have an 18-year-old son. He also has had some health problems. So he has lots of issues with eating. So he eats out a lot. And he's now a driver, right? So he's spending a lot on gas and on the car. We, for instance, spring break was coming up and we were a little bit late to get our tickets. And this is going to be the last spring break we have or we had with my son before he goes to college, as well as my daughter. So we spent, oh boy, we spent about two to three times what we normally would have spent on a vacation on this vacation because it was during spring break. So everything was really expensive. Uh, and then we did it last minute. Um, so we're doing lots of stuff like that where we just kind of, we have the money, we're using it. And I don't, you know, I don't think about it anymore. Like if we go to a restaurant and the bill happens to be 80 or $90, I don't even, that's not even a thought. Whereas back in the day, it totally would have been. 2023 is flying by, especially if you're a business owner. It's important to take the time to plan to make the most of your time. In fact, you don't want to wait any longer to level up your small business and set your year up for success. Get ahead of the competition by using stamps.com to mail and ship. Stamps.com lets you print your own postage and shipping labels right from your home or office. It's ready to go in minutes so you can get back to running your business sooner. For 25 years, stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. 
Get access to the UPS USPS shipping service. You need to run your business right from your computer anytime, day or night. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. And if you sell products online, stamps.com seamlessly connects with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Set up your business for success when you get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code millionaire for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code millionaire. Once again, four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. That's www.stamps.com slash millionaire. And thanks to stamps.com for sponsoring today's show. Interesting. So I'm real curious, as you move into this next phase, I mean, have you started thinking about like, at what point do you take Social Security? Do you change the way that your health insurance looks? I mean, some of these things that we might see from some of our guests who get towards that retirement age, I mean, you've kind of got a head start on that. Have you thought through that? Any plans, any things that, that would be beneficial to, to share? I, I definitely think about that. So health insurance is one of the big ones, right? So my wife has chosen to keep working because she likes her job and that job provides health insurance. And she's actually to the point where in a few years, if she were to stick it out, she may get health insurance with retirement because she's been at her company for so long. Um, So that's something that crosses her mind. But I also realize that we can always shop privately for health insurance. And yes, it is an expense. I'm not going to lie, right? It costs money. Uh, but we could work that into our financial plan and it would be fine. Uh, so it's something we consider and something we think about, um, but not something that keeps me up late at night because I know that there's lots of options. Some of those options cost money, but we've been lucky enough to save up and to invest aggressively enough that even those expensive options will be able to manage. I thought a little bit about Social Security, but probably I'll put it off to the latest possible moment. We did all of our financial planning with the thought that Social Security wouldn't be there, not because I think Social Security won't be there, because I do think it'll be there. I don't think it's going away. Um, I just made sure that I was conservative and that we would have enough money regardless. Uh, I do consider things like spend down, like we're different than lots of people, especially in the financial independent space. We do not have a lot in the Roth IRA space. So most of our money is in 401ks um, and IRAs. And so we potentially will have a RMD problem, which is definitely a wealthy person problem. If you have an RMD issue, uh, we may end up at that place where we're in a very high tax bracket when we eventually start taking RMDs because of how much money we have saved in retirement savings. So these are all things I think over time, especially if we get to a point where our income goes down enough to do some Roth conversions and those kind of things, I think we will we will look into it. But at this point, Not much is changing. The only thing, again, I'd say is people say, well, when you get towards retirement, you want to be less aggressive. Uh, We're taking the exact opposite look, especially with our equities, is we're pretty darn aggressive, but we still have income. So there's no reason not to. Like, we're not spending down at all. uh, So we'll be as aggressive at least in the short term. Now, if we get to the point where we have zero income on all sides, then we'll maybe consider whether we want to be a little less aggressive. And and that'll be time to start thinking about doing some of those Roth conversions or moving some money from that kind of maximally taxed place of retirement savings to hopefully a less tax space. Yeah. Is there, I'm just curious, kind of your thought process on, on that. I mean, is there a point where it would make sense for you to consider a Roth conversion ladder, even while you still have some income, given that you've, you've built such a 
tax, you know, highly tax deferred allocation, if you will. Yeah, you know, we thought about it. So we're in in a very high tax bracket now. <laughs> so, you know, this is where we get to perfect is the enemy of good, in my opinion. So, yes, we might be able to improve things one or two percent by being a little smarter at this point in how we do these things. But that one to two percent probably won't really change our life that much. And so we're going from a high-tax space now to probably a high-tax space later. But yes, you can look at tax bracket arbitrage and try to figure out and say, well, I'm here today and this is where I'm going to be tomorrow and when will be the best time to do this. And and there are lots of arguments that go into both. Um, and we've thought about them. But again, some of this is is letting the the tax tail wag the income dog, so to speak. And on some level, I think we think about it, but I don't obsess over it. Yeah, for sure. Do you plan on doing any type of geo arbitrage? So I love the, so geo arbitrage almost subsumes that you're going to need the financial fuel of making your money in one place that's kind of high income and then using it in another place, which is low cost. We don't really need that. Like we have enough income that we should be fine even here in the U.S. regardless. But I love the idea of living somewhere that has a little bit better of a climate, especially in the winter. So we've definitely considered this idea of spending our winters in Mexico. I love Mexico. I feel very home there. We've gone there many years in a row. Uh, so I could see us spending some time in Mexico just for the climate issues. Awesome. Well, let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. You've got this book. It's already published. Pretty much can get it everywhere, right? You can. Um, it is available, especially online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. And it is not available at every bookstore. Like it's in some Barnes & Nobles, not others. But it's certainly if they don't have it there, they can order it for you. So it's called Taking Stock. And because I can, and you're on my podcast, I'm going to tout this is this is written by a deck of millionaire because there's not many people out there <laughs> that are, are probably rolling around. But it's just, I mean... In all reality, you, you don't get to sit down with with a deck of millionaire and and get the mind and the insights. You know, I mean, obviously, there's several deck of millionaires that are in books, but this is a real unique perspective. Why why did you decide to to do this? And I guess maybe what are some of the highlights and the top points that that you wanted to kind of come about from from readers who who read this book. So the reason I wrote this book is I had been struggling with my own finances and career for many years, and I got sent the book, The White Coat Investor by Jim Daly. I was writing a medical blog at the time, and he wanted me to look at his book in 2014 and write a review for my medical blog. And I read his book, and it was the first time someone gave me the vocabulary to realize that I was financially independent. It was something I had never really understood. And all of a sudden, I read his book, and I'm like, oh, wow, I have enough money. I don't really have to work anymore. And instead of being jubilant, I actually had a panic attack and felt pretty depressed and anxious for a good six to 12 months. And it took me another four or five years to really get my life in order enough to stop being a physician full time, which was no longer making me happy. But that identity was so wrapped up in who I was. And my sense of purpose was so tied to either a being a doctor or b making money that when I realized I didn't need to do either of them anymore, I didn't know who I was. And so this really pushed me down the rabbit hole of, of looking into personal finance. I started a personal finance blog called Diversify. I eventually started the Earn and Invest podcast. And when I did this, I really wanted to talk about those 
201 ideas, right? Not the 101 of how do I make money? How do I save and earn a lot? What I really wanted to talk about is what does that mean in my life and how do I then use that money to live a better life? And so on my podcast, I'd have all these experts on, right? People who are experts in business and financial independence and side hustling and passive income. But a lot of times we all struggled with the same thing, which is what does all this mean? In the midst of looking for these answers, I started finding them from the most unlikely source. You see, my hospice patients, the patients who I as a doctor were still helping prepare for end of life, they had a lot of insight about what money means to us and what's important and most importantly, what they were regretting that they hadn't achieved or accomplished in their lives. And it suddenly clicked. Like my hospice patients have a lot to teach those of us who are much younger and have a long time to live about wealth and what role wealth plays in our lives. And so I wrote this book as a culmination of both those different aspects of my life because I saw how they magically came together. There's something about when you are told that you have six months or less to live that's incredibly clarifying. And so as I was sitting down with these dying patients, they were telling me about their lives and specifically the things that they could now see they wish they had achieved, right? Their regrets about not doing those important things. It was never as clear as when they were told that they had a finite amount of life left. And I kind of said, geez, what if younger people could really have that perspective? And that really drove the writing of this book. Yeah, it's real interesting. I wanted to, I mean, you've got several good chapters in here, but one that's that's real interesting to me, actually there's a couple but one I wanted to kind of bring attention to is the part two. You've got many parts of the financial independence, and you kind of have these these parable of the three brothers. You got choice one, the traditional path, front load the sacrifice. Choice two, passive income and side hustles. Choice three, the passion play. And then you discuss what you did. And I'm curious now that you're a little bit on the other side of this fence. Are you happy with the decision you made to, to, to front load and would you change anything about the route that you've taken as it relates to that? So here's what I always say to this question, because I thought about it a lot in my own head. Like, I feel wonderfully lucky that I found medicine, even though it wasn't my ultimate passion and something that I've pretty much moved away from. Why do I feel lucky? Well, one is I was able to front load the sacrifice. What that means is I worked really hard, I grinded it out, I made a lot of money, I put that money in the stock market and the real estate, and that's what's now fueling my retirement. So I'm incredibly lucky that I had such a well-paying job that I was good at that got me to this place financially. I'm also incredibly happy and lucky that I got to be a doctor for, you know, two decades, which meant that I got to show up every day and hopefully be there for people, sometimes at the worst times in their lives. And I got to affect change for these people. I got to help them get better when that was possible. And when it wasn't possible, I got to palliate and ameliorate their suffering and be there for their families. So I'll never feel bad about that, even though now looking back, I could have done other things, right? I always had a penchant for business and I've, I love to be a communicator and I love podcasting and writing. There's certainly other career paths I could have taken that maybe were more fitting with my identity, but I can't imagine being where I am today, which is pretty happy without going through what I had gone through. Now, the other perspective on that is if I had taken some of my own advice from this book, Taking Stock, the advice is that first think about purpose and identity. And once you do that, then start building a financial pathway vis-a-vis -vis the three brothers, the parable about how we go about building finances. 
if I had been smart enough to think a little more about purpose, I might have built a better career in the first place. So when I started in medical school, one of the first things I did was volunteer in hospice because my father had died when I was young. So I felt connected to people dealing with death and dying. So I volunteered in the hospice my first week of medical school. The first patients I ever saw were through hospice, and it was something I was really good at. Now, if I was a little more in tune with my sense of purpose, I might have said, hmm, this is something you're good at. This is something you're passionate about. Why don't you pursue a career being a hospice doctor? But I wasn't in touch with my purpose. So I pursued a career doing general internal medicine, doing all sorts of other things because they were more lucrative or I thought they were more exciting or I thought they fit me better. If I had been more in touch with my love of helping people at the end of life, maybe I would have started my career there. Maybe I would have never burnt out. I certainly wouldn't have made as much money, but maybe I wouldn't have been trying to escape my job and it would have taken me longer to get to a good financial place, but I would have been loving what I was doing every day. So that would have been okay. And so I guess that's the only regret is that if I had been a little more in tune with my own sense of purpose, I might have still ended up in a good financial place, but my career longevity might've been a little bit longer and a little bit more fulfilling. Uh, and I might've enjoyed it a little more. And so that maybe is the regret that I didn't kind of follow the steps that I'm now asking people to follow in this book, which is put your finances aside just for a moment and really start thinking deeply about what purpose looks like in your life, how you want to be identified. What are those main connections in your life? Because I think if you can start there, then we can become really clear about building our finances in such a way that support those things, as opposed to rushing to some endpoint of financial independence or financial freedom and then saying, okay, now what do I want to do with all this? Yeah. Another part I wanted to, to kind of focus on a little bit is, is the dying wish. You, you had a real interesting insight into, you know, being as a hospice doctor, being with all these people who are nearing the end of their life. And the one thing that all of them have, have said is they, they want more time. Right. And, and I think, you know, you've got a couple chapters or a couple chapter, or I guess not chapters, but, uh, sections here in the book. One's the time perception, time abundance and time stress. And you kind of wrap up with, you know, your final thoughts on time in, in, in your words, as it relates to, you know, kind of the experiences that you've had, how should we think about time? What are things and mistakes that we make thinking about time, maybe incorrectly, or, or maybe we do think about it correctly and we just don't have it framed correctly? So I think our biggest issue is that we feel like we can commoditize time. What that means is we think we can buy, sell, trade, or exchange it. In fact, if you look at the way we use the American language, we often say that, like it's a waste of time, or that bought me some more time, or how are you trading your time for money, those type of things. But that's not really true. You can't commoditize time. Time just passes no matter what you do. It's an immutable fact that time will progress and pass, and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's also, it's a truth that we have a certain amount of time allotted on this earth. We don't know how much that is, whether we're going to live to 50, 70, or 90, but it's a set amount of time, and once it's gone, it's gone. So the problem is we tend to think of time in a not-so-helpful way. The better way to look at time is actually to think of it as that you have these time slots that make up your life, right? Whether it's weeks, months, years, or hours, however you want to look at these time slots, we have a set number of them, and they're going to pass no matter what you do, and you have no control over them passing. 
So there's only two things you do have control over. One is how you perceive time, and the other is what activities you are involved in during those time slots. So let's talk about time perception. We have a little bit of control over how we perceive time. If you doubt me, I can say put a stopwatch on and hit the stopwatch and wait five minutes and think about how that five minutes passing felt. Now, I want you to do the same thing, except I want you to get into a plank. You know what a plank is, right? When you're crouching on the floor and it really works your core muscles. Get into a plank pose and then hit that stopwatch and wait five minutes. And then at the end, tell me which five minutes felt longer, the five minutes while you were just sitting there or the five minutes while you were planking. My guess is, because planking is pretty painful for most of us, that the five minutes you spent planking feels a lot more like it was longer than the five minutes when you were just sitting there watching the clock. And so this is time perception. And so we know, for instance, young people tend to seem seem to perceive time as forever, right? When you were a little kid, it was like a summer was forever. Whereas when you're my age, almost 50, the summer goes by like this. Months and years pass incredibly fast. So we can mess around with the things like time perception a little bit. So for instance, when you front load the sacrifice, what you're really doing is you're doing the hard work while time feels like it's forever so that when you're older and time is flying quickly, you actually have a lot more availability to do things you want during that time because you front loaded the sacrifice and get your finances in order and can do what you want to do. So that's messing with time perception. That's kind of one thing we have a little control over. The other thing we have some control over is what activities we place in those time slots. And this is what I think is really clear and how people get it wrong. If you are not being thoughtful about purpose and what's important to you, you are not going to fill those time slots with things you really want to do. You're going to fill them up with work and things you're required to do, or maybe even just, you know, things that you're passing the time with because you don't know what you should be doing. But those time slots are really precious. And so if we start getting really clear about what purpose looks like in our life, we can then start trying to transition as many of those time slots as possible into things we like doing and subtracting or getting rid of all those things we don't like doing. And so to me, that's really how we should think about time is how do we utilize those time slots to the best of our joy and fulfillment and purpose? How do we fill them up with things we really like doing and get rid of those things we don't like doing? And I think that's the kind of best way to start thinking about time. Interesting thoughts there. Thanks for sharing. You wrap up the the book here with a couple interesting things, but this ta- chapter is titled Investing Tips from a Hospice Doctor. And the last few sections, I'm just going to read these off. Investing tips from a hospice doctor. Invest in yourself. Invest in education. Invest in other people. Invest in children. Invest in physical and mental health. Invest in the market. Why did you choose to sum up the book with all of those? So here's my thought. We use these terms with investing, like compounding and dividends, right? And so we're really busy spending all our time thinking about how do we get money into the stock market? How do we get money into real estate? How do we use our money and put it in a place where it can compound and eventually give us dividends? And those things are going to nourish us. Well, I want to turn that around and say, you know what? Investments in money and equities and bonds and real estate, well, they're not the only thing that compounds. 
when we invest in our education, when we invest in our children, when we invest in experiences and love and joy, those things compound too. And as we get older, those that compounding creates dividends in the form of memory and love and connections. And so I wanted to make sure that if we're using this investing terminology, we realize actually that money is a tool to do all of these other things. But the problem is compounding money will never really bring you joy above and beyond the fact that it allows you to afford the things you want to do. But if we start thinking about investing in things that really give us a sense of purpose, identity, and connections, and we start doing that at a young age, the compounding we eventually lead to is happiness and fulfillment. And isn't that really the goal? And so I want to remind people, especially at the end of the book, is Let's invest in those things that really ultimately will make us more happy because as much as we think it will, money will only get us to a certain level of happiness. It's all those other things that need to compound that truly make a life worth living. And so I wanted to remind people at the end of this book that that's what our real goal is. Awesome. Doc G, as it relates to advice for somebody who's just starting out, what would you tell them? So I I think it's really a three-step process, and this is really what the book outlines. First and foremost, think about purpose, identity, and connections, and there are some exercises in the book that help you start pursuing a sense of purpose and identity. That comes first. Once you get a hold of what feels a little bit more purposeful in your life, then it is time to build a financial framework or structure. That's where we get into the parable of the three brothers and the different ways to build wealth. And then last but not least, because no matter how well you know your sense of purpose and no matter how good your financial plan is, all of us have to still answer a basic question every day of our life. Should we spend today because it's going to be purposeful, give us enjoyment, make us happy, or should we instead take that same money put it away, invest it, and let it compound for tomorrow? So should we YOLO, you only live once? spend today versus defer gratification and live a great retirement. That's a question we all have to deal with every single day, no matter how good we are with our finances. And so there's one last question I pose, which is really step three of this process is what scares you most? This idea of dying young and wealthy or living old and running out of money. Because if you can ask yourself what scares you the most, you can start deciding how much to spend today versus save for tomorrow. It's looking at that YOLO deferred gratification continuum. And I think asking that question is the only real way to parse it out because you nor I nor anyone really knows when they're gonna die. So we don't have a definitive answer. If I knew I was gonna die in 10 years, then I could plan my spending out so that I ran out of money right in 10 years and got to use everything to its fullest. Since we don't know that big question, we have to ask ourselves that proxy, which is what scares us most, and then start making decisions about how to spend meaningfully today as well as save for tomorrow. Good deal. It's Doc G. Taking Stock is the book. You can get that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the local booksellers. Thanks for coming to the show again. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast, man. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.